Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Super excited, actually, like beyond excited for this week's guest, Mr. Arjuna Ardug. So I met Arjuna at a entrepreneur retreat, and I heard him speak. And I don't usually do this, but I don't know why I just happened to have my mic and my podcast set up on me. But I went up to him right after and I was like, Arjuna, we need to record a podcast, man. You are brilliant. And this episode is the child of that courageous ask of the man. So to give you a little bit of background on Arjuna, Arjuna is a radical brilliance coach, a writer, and a public speaker. And he was the original founder of Awakening Coaching. He's trained more than 2,000 people to become awakening coaches over the last 25 years. He's the author of nine books. He's done all sorts of stuff. I mean, I can't, I, I could go down to his rabbit hole of accomplishments and the people he's impacted. But what really shines about Arjuna to me is his heart and how he is so committed to creating brilliance, to inspiring contribution, to helping others discover how they can make their greatest mark on humanity so we can move the game forward in an evolutionary way. You know, I'm just a super fan. He's a deep thinker. He's a heart-centered genius. Uh, His perspectives, understanding, and approach to impact are just profound. And I, I got a lot from not only what I learned from his talk, which was on his concept of radical brilliance. And we have all sorts of links to show notes so you can go and check out his book, Radical Brilliance and Beyond, but just also his unique perspective on life and the principles within it. The obvious reasons why Maslow's hierarchy is inaccurate, which was a bit of an interesting rabbit hole for myself as well, because I base a lot of my own personal beliefs and in, in, in how the world works in Maslow's hierarchy. So that one was a lot, a lot of fun for me. I, I'm a huge fan of Arjuna, and I think you guys will be too. Like I said, I'm inspired when individuals can tap into their heart and speak in a way that inspires individuals to have more, be more, and live with intention and purpose. And Arjuna is a man that inspires that in spades. So super excited uh, for you guys to learn about Arjuna if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, send me a note on Instagram. Join the Facebook community. Stay grounded is all over the place. However, you are choosing to use this as weekly fuel for your mind, your heart, and your soul. Thank you. I very much do appreciate who you guys are. But without further ado, I am so, so, so excited and privileged to be introducing this week's guest. Mr. Arjuna Ardug. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Stay Grounded. I am sitting right next to an extraordinary human being 
who I just had the pleasure of getting to know. And uh, not a lot of people blow my mind, Arjuna, but uh, you, you tend to fall in that bucket of people. So I am really excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So already introed you and brought you in and gave a little bit of background to our wonderful listeners. But I'd love to start the conversation because there's a lot of different things we can talk about, mm-hmm. a lot of different angles we can go in. But one thing that intrigued me most about your talk was just your own definition of what brilliance was. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to start there. Can you define brilliance and what it means to you? Sure. I like the way you say what it means to you, because actually a lot of these words, you know, a lot of words in that category, they don't have fixed physical definitions. They, they actually mean whatever you choose them to mean. So obviously in the physical world, a brilliant object is one that radiates light, right? So a brilliant diamond would be one that, that radiates light. But if you think about it, actually a brilliant diamond is not a source of light, it's taking light from the sun and refracting it, right? So right. It's, which is actually a nice little analogy. So I think of a brilliant individual as one who is making the most comprehensive contribution, both horizontally, you could say, to as many people as possible, vertically in as deep a way as possible, but also spatially to as, as, many, uh, to as far forward in the future as possible, right? Now, you can make impact. People can make an impact by being brilliant, but it may not necessarily be evolutionary. So I'm interested in supporting people to move the game forward for everybody in a way that is clearly evolutionary, not just now, but, but that we will reflect on as clearly evolutionary in a few generations to come. So in order to even think at that scale, right, to start thinking evolutionary, mm. I feel like you have to do a lot of work to get to that point. So can you describe the process? Because can anybody contribute in a way that moves the evolutionary game forward? And can they do that when there are other needs in life right. that get in the way? That's a great question. You know, if you remember, we were talking about that by the pool the other day, yeah. right? And we, we were referring to uh, a dude called Abraham Maslow, yep. who lived in the 20th century. Gosh, remember that? Yeah, 20th yeah, century? <laughs> wow. Anyway, Abraham Maslow, he came up with this idea of the hierarchy of needs. So in its very simplistic form, he would say that you need to start with very basic needs, like obviously the need to eat, the need to have shelter. And then once you've got that in place, the next need would be emotional bonding, you know, a sense of tribe. And it escalates up, he says, through seven stages. And then the, the, the ultimate level is self-actualization, which is where also in its original inception, uh, he would say that human beings feel the need to contribute from self-actualization. Well, actually... In, in my podcast, the first episode is with Lynn Twist, who I'd really recommend to you as a guest. Yeah. She founded the Pachamama Alliance most recently, but originally was one of the instigators of the Hunger Project that was founded by Buckminster Fuller, Werner Earhart, and her. And she actually then moved it forward. So she spent her whole life you know, in, a, in, in contribution, in brilliant contribution. And actually, very respectfully, Lynn Twist said in, a, in an interview we did, that you know, Abraham Maslow was great in his time, pioneer in his time, all kudos to him, but actually the model is wrong, okay? The hierarchy of needs is actually, you know, it was, it was a great understanding, a great idea that moved us forward at the time, but it's actually fundamentally wrong that people, given the opportunity to contribute, given the opportunity to make the greatest contribution possible, people will do that at any level of personal gratification, fulfilled already or not. So she gave the example 
that she's worked in war-torn areas. She worked, she's worked in areas of famine, where she's worked alongside people who had no idea where their next meal was coming from. They had no idea where they were going to sleep that night. They had nothing. They had none of their hierarchy of needs in place. But give them an opportunity to serve, to make a difference to other people, and they will jump on it gratefully. So she's pointing out that actually the hierarchy of needs doesn't really quite apply in that way. And it's good news because it means that whoever you are, whoever's joining us in this intimate conversation today, whoever's listening in, it doesn't really matter your circumstances. You can actually choose to make, you can make a choice, an artful choice to make your life about contribution, making a difference to other people and to people maybe you've not even met or people who are not even born. But, you know, there's another side to this. There's another huge misunderstanding that Lynn Twist has really helped me clarify. And she's really the, I think, the greatest living exponent of this. That we have the idea that when you make your life about contribution, about making a difference to as many people as possible in the most brilliant way possible, that it somehow involves sacrifice, right? That it somehow involves yeah. giving up things for yourself, that you're going to have less for you. That's the picture that's been painted. Right. And that's so not true. Yeah. You know, it's so not true. That actually, what are the things we want in life? You know, we want most people, well, people want money. I want to have enough money. I want financial security. People want good health. Yeah. People want to have great relationships, loving relationships, great sex. People want to be recognized. You know, you can try and get all those things directly. The problem with trying to get money directly, if you know, I just want money. I just want to grow my company and sell it and make $100 million. <laughs> I won the game, you see. Yeah. You, you can try and do that. But the problem that I notice, I work with a lot of people like that. I, I work with a lot of kind of people in recovery from that. That it, it did not deliver the result they hoped for. It doesn't yeah. lead to the fulfillment and satisfaction they hoped for. You can, ho you can try and go for fame. But very often going for fame, trying to get on the, to be number one, the New York Times bestseller, your life still stays empty and lonely. You can go for maximum Facebook likes, you know, you can go for the perfect relationship, but entangling yourself with another person to try and make that the source of your happiness is going to be problematic. But when you make your life about service, when you call out in longing to some intelligence bigger than your own mind to be given an opportunity to serve All those things actually fall in place on their own. Money starts to flow easily because if you're really making a difference to people, that's right. right. If you're yeah. really contributing to people, either people want to pay you because they feel grateful or they want to support you through nonprofit structure. They want to support you because they can see you're doing such inspiring good work, right? Money flows easily. When you're making a great contribution, it naturally creates flowing good relationships. It naturally leads to good health because you feel good about yourself. You feel uplifted, you know? So actually making a contribution is not just something you do when you've got everything else in place. It's something you can do to cause everything else to fall into place. That's right. It's interesting though. So contribution mm. as, a, as a concept, mm. right? I think a lot of people get stuck thinking about how they can contribute. Mm. And they start getting wrapped up in the how, in the how. Right. How can I contribute if I don't have this? How can I do this if I don't have that? Right. So would you say that the first step in living a service-driven life is actually contributing to yourself? Not the first step. I mean, we don't have to put them in order necessarily, but absolutely an essential step. So, you know, I'm just working on a, a book right now. I, I support people who want to make the greatest contribution. That's my right. kind of gig. You know, I, I, I partner with people who want to make a great contribution. So one of the people I've partnered with is a very brave doctor 
from Switzerland who started this thing called Heart-Based Medicine. You can, you can find that online, heartbasedmedicine.org. Uh, his name is Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer. When I met him, he didn't have any of that going on. He was in yeah. vaccine safety with the WHO. But out of our work together, you know, we, we kept burrowing together until we found his contribution, his real legacy, his real contribution. And now he's, he's started to work on that. So one of the insights that we've arrived at through that work is if you want to care for bodies, right? If you're a doctor and you want to take care of physical bodies, right? So you decide, okay, there's this dimension, there's this realm of physicality, right? And it's made of of skin and right. flesh and blood. And I want to devote my life to making that physical, cellular thing that have, we call bodies. I want to make that as great as possible. Which body do you have access to where you can start, right? <laughs> Which is the body closest to you where you could start to put things right? Yeah. Obviously, the one you're living inside. And which are the bodies closest to you after that? The ones that live in the same house with you. And then if you get good at that, you are then qualified to go into a hospital and help other people with their bodies too. So in answer to your question, you know, we, it's not necessarily we start with that, but it definitely has to include that. You know, if you want to love people, that love has to include the human being that you call me. You know, if you want to help people become wealthy, that wanting people to be wealthy has to include you. If you want people to be healthy, et cetera, you know. Mm. That's so powerful. So Don't it's leave almost, yourself out. You have, to, you have to experience the medicine you want to deliver to the world. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's self-care right now. It's a really interesting sort of time where we're going from this hustle, hustle, hustle world to being more in flow and, and taking care of yourself along the way. Do you think struggle and challenge has a role yeah. in creating contribution, creating a service-driven life and really yeah. infusing meaning? For sure. We don't need to create it artificially. It's not necessary to try and create chaos. Why not? Well, okay, good question. I, I think one reason why not is life's going to throw you so much already. You don't really need to get involved in that. <laughs> right? Fair enough. But anyway, chaos, chaos, disappointment happens. And yeah, you can always use it to increase your resilience and to sharpen your sense of determination and purpose to make a great contribution. You know, it's like, okay, even with these odds, even with these things not working out, I'm still going to persevere in making life better for people. Why are you so interested in this? Well, the answer that came to my mind as you asked that is, uh, is that it's the only game in town, really. You know, everything else is plastic food. You discover that sooner or later. It's the only game in town, you know. It's the only way that I know of that you can really fundamentally, deeply switch off the light each night with a feeling of satisfaction and peace. And it's the only way that I know of that one day you're going to die and breathe your last breath and go, ah, that was a life well lived. You know, you're young, right? Yeah. You're, uh, you're 28, I think. 28. Yeah. Right. So you're not, you don't have kids yet. Nope, not yet. No, no, no kids. So, you know, when you have kids, it's a very interesting thing happens. I think up until the point that I became a father, I was a pretty narcissistic, selfish asshole, you know? <laughs> I mean, with a nice sort of new age veneer on it, you know, it kind of looked all smarmy and Polish kind of the turd. smiley, <laughs> but I was basically in it for me. And then my wife at the time, she got pregnant. Still got no idea how that happened. I have to study the biology at some point, but something happened. She got pregnant. And I actually, I was away for an extended period of time. I was away from where we were living. So 
everybody else got to know about the pregnancy before I did, right? Mm-hmm. By that point, it was kind of too late. It's like, it, it, you know, I would have voted for the abortion, right, to be honest, because I just, I had all sorts of rational in my head, but probably if I translated it, I was just too concerned that having a baby would disrupt all of my, my the way that I was taking care of myself and all my needs, you know. But we ended up having a baby, you know. So what happened was we, we prepared the birth to be the most perfect birth that anyone's ever had. You know, we had like a water thing, you know, like a, a lamaze, is that what it's called? I'm not sure. Yeah. And we had this water birth with music and a taped, we had a taped message. We had a teacher at that time, a, a spiritual teacher. We had a taped message from this teacher and, oh, we had everything going on. It was like perfect, perfect birth, you know? And, and, and uh, shortly before, like the day before my wife at the time was going to have the baby, we went in to check with a midwife. And so she put her hand, the water broke. She put her hand to feel. She said, she said, this baby has a very small head. I thought, oh no, it's going to be like Popeye, you know? <laughs> Popeye the sailor had a very small head. It turned out it was the baby's knee was stuck in the canal. Now, that's called breach. And once the knee is really stuck in there and the water is already gone, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't, it's, you, it's impossible to turn the baby around. There's no water left. So we had to be rushed to the hospital. We had to do a cesarean. And it was a very long cesarean. So they did the cesarean. My wife was under anesthetic. So they bring out this baby, which looks dead. I mean, it's white white as a sheet with a lot of blood on it. It looked really like a very dead thing. Wasn't breathing, wasn't making any sound. So they moved this baby over to this little plastic bassinet. And I thought, oh my God, you know, we're going to have a funeral. I I was going through all this in my head. Now, quick backtrack for a minute, go back in time. During the time of the pregnancy, when my wife was pregnant, every day as a little kind of ritual, I would put my head down by by her belly button. And I would say, hello, Mm. I'm your daddy. We're going to meet soon. We're going to do this thing. We're going to do that thing. So I talked to the baby every day for nine months, right? So when this baby came out, I leaned over the cot and they were doing this stuff. You know, they were kind of squeegeeing mucus out or whatever, you know. And I leaned over the cot, this little plastic thing. And I said, hello, I'm your daddy. You know, the same way I had for nine months. And this, this the baby's eyes opened, bright blue, luminous eyes. And he reached out and he grabbed my little finger. My little finger was like, you know, a foot away, he grabbed onto my little finger and held onto it tight, you know, and he, he recognized the voice, like, boom, he just grabbed on. That's my guy, you see? Well, what happened after that is my wife was really out of it from that whole thing. So we went, we ended up going up to the hospital room, but for whatever reason, strange, he would not take her breast milk. For the first week or 10 days, he would not touch the breast. No one knew why. But if we could pump it out with a little pump thing and put it into a bottle, and I held the bottle for him, he would take it. Completely illogical. The other thing was, he would not go to sleep in a still mode. If I, if I would pick him up and cradle him in my arms and walk up and down the hospital, then he would take the milk as we were walking and he would sleep as we were walking. So I kid you not, you know, we did that for a week. For one week in this big hospital in Seattle, I think it was called Bellevue Memorial Hospital. That's what we did for a week. We walked the hospital wars. I don't know, I don't know how I managed. Yeah. I mean, I think occasionally I drifted off somehow. He wouldn't be with his mother. He wouldn't be with me sitting down. He, it just if I walked him, he would go to sleep and he would drink milk, right? So that was an extreme case of, you know, putting my own needs aside completely for this baby. I didn't even shower for that week, right? 
And finally, after a week, there's a whole other story to it I won't go into an hour where they, they thought he was, they thought he had strep. It was a whole big deal. But anyway, we, we got through all that. We went home. And really, after that, uh, my life became about being a father in a much more extreme way than I ever imagined, right? Just fast forward a minute. I ended up getting divorced, unfortunately, from their mother when, when my oldest son, that boy I'm talking about, was four. Yeah, okay. And I had another son, and I really didn't want to get divorced, but it was one of those things where as try as hard as you might, there was just no way we were going to make this marriage work. It was just like endless. It just, we disagreed about everything. and We tried and we tried. We couldn't make it. We went to therapists, everything. So we got divorced. And then there was a period where it was quite a long period of many years where the kids were living a week with their mother and a week with me, a week with the mother. So when it was my turn, when they were with their mother, I had been traveling. So that was how I earned a living. I would travel to teach seminars during the week they were with her. I would fly back in after the seminar on a Monday, drive directly from the airport to the school, pick up the kids. Then they were with me for a week. At the end of the week on Monday, I would drive them to the school in the morning and drive on to the airport. So either I was traveling or I was being a dad with no break. And that went on for years, you know. And during this time when they were, when they were with me, it was full on. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I made this decision we were going to have no processed food. So we bought, we bought all our food in the, in the fresh produce section, right? We made everything from scratch. Now they're both excellent cooks because everything was cooked from scratch in our house, you know. So I would pick them up at 3.30 in the afternoon from school. You know, we'd buy some groceries. We'd come home. We'd cook the food. We'd prepare breakfast. We'd do homework. You know, we'd have to do, create packed lunches. There was a whole routine going on. Then read a story. They would go to bed. Then I'd clean up the kitchen. Finally, I would fall asleep at 10 o'clock in the night, right? Now, sometimes it happened, okay? Sometimes it happened. I'd fallen asleep at 10, exhausted. I knew I had to get up at 6 the next morning to take them to school again. Two o'clock in the morning, daddy, daddy. And one of my kids had thrown up. You know, maybe it was his first time throwing up. Big shock. What's this stuff coming out of my mouth, you know? So I would go. He's all upset. He's got a fever. We've got to change the sheets. We've got to do everything. When I wake up in the night, two in the morning, and I hear, daddy, I don't think about, you know, what do I need right now? What are my needs? What is my calling? What is my higher purpose? Mm, right? Yeah. Like, what's going to serve me best? There's none of that. You don't go through any, you don't do any kind of, you know, astrology reading to see what your next move is. You jump out of the bed without hesitating. You jump out of the bed and you run. Okay. And I did that for years. You know, I did that for years where my own needs were only relevant to the extent that they had to be addressed so that I could show up. You know, like I couldn't show up as a dad completely stressed out and frenetic. So I was meditating, but not for me. I was meditating so I could show up in the best possible way. And that went on for years. And actually, a lot of people have that with, with, with having kids. Right. You know, having kids cures you of being an asshole, basically, right? Because you actually learn through necessity what it's like to put others' needs ahead of your own. And then you discover this magic thing that when you're forced to do that, lo and behold, that is where you great, get your greatest fulfillment. It's like, wow, you start to feel great. You feel good about yourself. You feel love. You know, it's a one-way street. You're giving to them. There's no exchange, you know. It's like you're not lending them money. You're paying for everything, you see. And, and it's the most fulfilling relationship, you know. So at a certain point, they moved out, you know. I mean, they, my older son went to college. My younger son just wanted to be independent quite early. Right. So they moved out, leaving me, just me and my wife, my second wife, and, you know, and the cat. But with that mindset still in place, right? 
And it just carries on that you, you just realize, wow, it's when you look for the opportunity to make the greatest contribution and give the most that you possibly can to any situation, that's where you get fulfillment as a byproduct. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for that story, by the way. Huh. I think a lot about my, my parents. In, in, in Indian cultures, you know, like the kids are pretty much everything, mm -hmm. right? So like my, my parents, they put their careers on hold. Mm -hmm. They made decisions. They, mm. they quote unquote sacrificed in the public eyes, maybe not in their eyes, mm. but in the public eyes, they did make decisions that mm. strayed them off of some sort of career path or mm. anything to give me and my brother the best life possible. Right. But in doing so, I've also noticed that when me and my brother graduated and we left and my parents didn't have us to give to, they had a bit of an identity crisis right. trying to figure out what they needed to do next, how they needed to do it. Mm. The way that they were contributing was for us. Mm -hmm. So people who are in that position where mm -hmm. they're in transition phases, where they've dedicated their lives, their conscious really understanding of everything they're doing mm. to a cause, mm. how do you sort of internalize the mindset of just giving to whatever's in front of you versus giving to something that's just been in your life for a long period of time? Well, you know, I think one thing is to understand the process as well as the outcome, okay? So there was this book came out in the 70s by Edward de Bono called Lateral Thinking. Do you remember that book? Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? Yeah. So Lateral Thinking, is a, it's, it's a great way of thinking about thinking, right? So normally when you're thinking, you're thinking about a particular problem. Yeah. Let's say you're thinking about a particular problem, but the problem involves a paradox or two opposing values. So how am I going to solve that and that at the same time when they're opposing each other? But maybe you're faced with that again and again and again, right? Okay, here's another thing where how can I satisfy the shareholders and the, the workers? Okay, okay, here's another problem. How do I satisfy my children and my friends. You know, here's another problem. How do I satisfy my need for stillness and meditation and this work deadline? Here, so you're, you're faced with conflicting values. So all the time you're thinking about that problem. Now I'm thinking about that problem. Now I'm thinking about that problem. If you zoom out, you can actually start to think about the nature of paradox itself. Okay. So now you're thinking not about individual cases. You're actually extrapolating what is true of all these things. Okay. So that is called, you know, systems thinking. Sometimes it's called lateral thinking. It's like actually zooming out and seeing, seeing the system involved. The little silver ball rolls down a track, right? And it rolls down a track and it rolls down a track. You start, to under, you start to think about the nature of the track, of the tracks involved, rather than one particular one. It may have been a bit obscure the way I said that, but you get the point, right? So this is the thing, you know, is, is when you gain fulfillment, from something. For example, if you feel incredibly fulfilled and happy when you're being a parent, you might think, I'm really happy because of little Raj. And now Raj is 10. I'm still happy now Raj is 12. You know, you may not have had the capacity to zoom out and realize, actually, I was happy because I was serving something beyond myself. And it happened to be Raj. And your brother is? Krishna. Krishna. Whoa. What a, what a pair of names, right? So, that's the capacity to reflect upon systems, you know. So one way you can do that is just on your own. Just realize, wait a minute, was I happy because of Raj or was I happy because of serving? In the same way, you know, you could, um, okay, supposing you, you find a really great physical fitness instructor called Chuck, right? And so Chuck's teaching this class at seven in the morning. 
So you get up at seven in the morning or 6.45 and you go to Chuck's class and you go, great, I'm feeling so much healthier because of Chuck, mm. right? Chuck's the greatest guy. As long as I've got Chuck in my life, I feel healthy. Chuck is the cause of health. Well, then Chuck, you know, moves to another city. So now you think, damn, I'm never going to feel healthy again because Chuck has moved. Yeah. But it's not Chuck that made you feel healthy. It's getting up at seven in the morning and doing exercise. You could do that with anybody, see? So that's an, a way of understanding the system, systems thinking. It's understanding the system instead of the content. So that's one answer to your question, yeah. right? But I think since you're asking about anybody listening, that is the beauty today of the emergence of coaching, you know, instead of teaching. Coaching allows you to enter into a relationship with somebody who asks powerful questions, you know? So you can get into a relationship with somebody and you could say, well, you know, I had these kids, Krishna and Raj, and things were great, and I felt really happy, and now I'm feeling a little empty. And then somebody else could say, okay, great. So what was it about? What was it about your life with your sons that was so great? Well, you know, they used to be in there in the morning for breakfast, and I used to make the breakfast, and... And then you could say, well, have you ever had that feeling anywhere else? Well, no, mostly it's with Krishna Raj. Have you ever had it anywhere else? Yeah, I guess one time there was this kind of picnic for my local organization and I, I, I made the food for the picnic. I also had that feeling then. So you, somebody asking powerful questions could right, help you extrapolate right. that it's actually the quality in yourself that was important more than the actual focus of your attention. I love that. I, and I want to dive deep, deeper into that philosophy. But first... How do you get better at asking questions? Well, I would say there are two answers to that. One is simply intention. My friend Ivan Meisner, who founded BNI, Business Network International, he says, God gave you one mouth and two ears, and it's a good idea to use them proportionally. So that's one, one perspective. Another perspective is if you want to really get good at listening, you can, and asking the, the most powerful questions, that's essentially what a coach training would do for you. If you go train as a coach, you'll learn how to ask the most powerful questions in the most powerful way. What role does intuition play in asking questions? Because there are some times where I personally feel called to ask a certain question mm. and I just kind of follow that light mm. versus asking a question that might be prescribed. How do you balance the two with intuition as well as just practical coached or, or, or seasoned questions that have proven to give um, meaningful results? Mm. Well, it's almost certainly going to be the first category, you know. I remember I had this teacher in India, the teacher I told you about, yeah. you know, when, I, when my first son was born, and he had this extraordinary impact on people. He just flipped people straight into, you know, straight into clarity, awakening. It's very immediate, very quick, you right. know. And somebody once asked him, you know, like, how do you do it? What's the, what's the trick that you just are able to produce these incredible state changes with people that actually are very often are abiding? And he said, paraphrasing now, but I think he said, you know, every morning I create a room in my heart. And when I meet somebody, I invite them to step into the room in my heart. Okay. Mm. So what does that mean? You know, it means, it means to really love people. I mean, it, that's what happens, you know, when you get really close with somebody you invite them into your heart. Come into my heart, into the most sacred place of love, the most sacred temple of love that lives inside of my heart. I'm going to invite you to come in there with me. And in that way, I can love you as myself. I can love you as a reflection of, of me and, and, and I'm a reflection of you where the separation is gone, you know? And so if you can cultivate that, you know, if you can cultivate that willingness 
And of course, what's in the way of that? You could say that's natural. So what's in the way of that is unnatural things that we're taught to do, like judgment, comparison. These are all learned mental habits, you know. If you think about it, preschool, there's not a whole lot of judging and comparing going right. on, you know. So judgment, comparison, blame, these are very much qualities taught to us by organized society. So if you can return back to creating that space in your heart in the morning and, 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 and invite people into the space in your heart uh, out of love, out of really loving somebody, really, really loving somebody, you're going to have the curiosity to write, ask the right questions, you know. See, let's, let's just take a simple example like, uh, hey, Raj, um, are you warm enough? I am toasty. Yes. You're toasty, you feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling yeah. great. You having a good time here? I'm having a fantastic time. Yeah? Did you have a good breakfast? I did. Did you get enough sleep? Uh, not as much as I'd like. No? Oh, <laughs> how, how are you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to catch up? <laughs> Maybe when I get home. So you see, those are the kind of questions I might ask a member of my family. You know, it's like, are you okay? Are you good? You know, it's like, because I care, you see? Those are questions that are coming out of caring. They're not, they're not curiosity for its own sake. Like, where do you live? What kind of work do you do? How much money do you make? You know, these are like, you good? You know, how are you enjoying this conference? You know, what are you enjoying most? Right? So these kind of questions, they are questions that are the overflow of loving somebody. And I do, you know, I love you. I've just met you, but I love you. Mm, I love and you what too. I mean by I love you is I look at you and I see beauty. I see beauty, but I also see the seeds of even more beauty, right? So you're 28, yeah. right? And I very much want you, I very, I very deeply, passionately want you to give everything you can in this life and to really live your absolutely fullest potential. And I would do anything I can to support you in that, right? So I look into you, I look into the window of your eyes and I see like, wow, here's this innocent guy, this innocent Raj, who's doing everything he can to make a better world. He's done 80 podcasts. You know, he's like organizing himself to, to do the very best he can. And I, I see that goodness in you. And I, and I want to just, I just want to fan the flames of that. So that's love, you know? And then you can love people when you just meet them. You can love people because you just, you see a flicker of goodness and you want to encourage it. So when you love people, you start to ask questions from that love. Like, how can I support you? How can I help you? How are you doing? Are you interested? Are you inspired? You know, what's holding you back? These are questions that arise out of loving somebody, which means seeing their beauty and wanting to do everything you can to bring that forth even more. Love is such a powerful force for inspiration, motivation. Mm. I mean, everything. It's, mm. it's the seed. Mm. So you, you believe that love is the, the default state. And when you're operating from that state, curiosity is, is almost like the natural flow. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I explained it wrongly. No, I don't believe that at all. Okay. No, I don't. I, in fact, I definitely don't believe that. Okay, what do you believe? I know that. Mm. <laughs> That's different, you see. I know it. What are we sitting on right now? Sitting on two chairs. Two chairs. What color are they? They're blue. And what are the chairs sitting on? Grass. And what color's the grass? Green. Did you, do you believe that the grass is green? No, I know. Well, <laughs> I see it as green. Yeah. Therefore, it must be green. Someone else who's colorblind or may not have. Yeah, that involves a lot of thinking. Though. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? But just like straight up, if I say to you, where do they serve the lunch? You're going to go ahead and point. Where's, yep. the, where's, the, where's the, yeah, you point to the dining room. Now, did that require a lot? Of, did that require a belief system? No. No, it's just, you know it, right? So I think it's important. It's important without arrogance to recognize what are the things you believe and what are the things that you know. It's different. Okay. Because, What's the difference? 
Well, we just pointed it out. Like you, you, you can see, you don't believe that the lunch is served over there. You know it because it's been like that. You know it. It's not it's something you don't have to think about. You don't have to question. It means if somebody comes and says, no, the lunch is in the river, you're just going to shrug and go, okay, if you want to think that, that's fine. But I know it's in, I know it's in the dining room, right? Or if somebody says, oh, you're going to do a podcast with Raj? I go, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've met Raj. He's Scottish. And I could go, if you want to think Raj is Scottish, that's fine. I happen to know Raj is not Scottish. You know, I know. You see what I said? I just said it without realizing. I happen to know that Raj is not Scottish. Now, I could say, I don't believe that Raj is. That's bullshit. I know he's not Scottish. Maybe that's a little bit iffy what I said there, because I suppose you could have Scottish roots. I don't know. But the point is, there are lots of things that you like. Are you in a relationship now? Yes. Yeah, with, with, who's your partner? Uh, her name's Vinny. Vinny. Okay. Yeah. So how do you feel about Vinny? I love her. Beautiful. Now you see there's no hesitation, yeah. right? So, so you believe that you love her then, right? Mm-hmm. You, you think you love her. I, I feel it. And, and Okay. Well, we've just run some tests. We just run a whole bunch of diagnostic tests and we've discovered you don't really love her. That, no, I, I know I love her. All right. Thank you. You see, you could yeah, say, well, you screw yeah. your tests, man. The tests yeah. are wrong. I know. Okay. I know. Yeah. Maybe your tests don't know how to measure love, but I know that I love her. Yeah. So it is important to make our way through life, in my opinion to recognize the things that we believe, the things that we don't know about, but also the things that we do know. There are things that you know, right? And the things that you know, the things that you know and and that you really do know are things to really stand firmly in. Now, you want to be careful because, you know, sometimes we take beliefs. Sometimes we take things that you really know, only know through a belief system. And you say that's knowing. But that's because it's come from what was told to you or what you made up in your head, it's not coming from direct experience. Now, when you talk about love, though, love as who you are instead of something you feel, I know that. I know that. I, I mean, I know that probably more than I know anything. What does knowing feel like? It means that when everything drops away, each and every time that things drop away, and there's a kind of peace descends because you just pay less attention to thoughts, what's left is love. And it means that in experimenting with that over the last I don't know how long it is now, more than 30 years of working with people, each and every time I'm able to guide people back into a deeper sense of themselves, what we discover is silence, stillness, peace, and love. And so, I don't know, maybe 10,000 times, right? I've been able to guide people, either in one-on-one work or in workshops, been able to guide people into a deeper sense of resting and then everybody says the same thing. You know, I say, so where is love now? It's, it's who I am, you know? So if you absorb yourself in a recognition enough, there comes a point when you know it, and then it is actually important to, it's important to own the things that you know, you know? It's important to own, well, you just get confused as fuck, you know? If you start thinking that the things you know are beliefs, yeah. you just confuse yourself unnecessarily. There are things you know that you can take a stand for, right? You can take a stand for the things that you know are right and good and that you know that you don't have any more mind chatter about. You just know it. And that is a fundamental thing. Sorry, just, to, just one more thing. That to know that love is underneath it all, to know that we do get confused, people get confused, people get selfish, people get lost, people get disconnected from themselves, and they act like they act badly, okay? Yeah. And that's true. Many people are disconnected. But to know that every human being does have the possibility to reconnect with themselves in a deep way and to, re- and to come home to love, to know that, to really know that and hold that, that actually becomes an incredibly powerful foundation of serving other people. 
because it means you can look at somebody, and this is actually a big part of this heart-based medicine we talked about earlier that uh, we've been developing with Dr. Bonhoeffer. You know, I'm just completing a book with him. So we're talking about, you know, with a doctor, uh, training doctors, you might walk into a hospital room and there's a patient really gr- grouchy. You know, I, I don't want to talk to you. I don't like you. It's important to know that is an upset person. That's a scared person. That's a contracted person. If you hang out, this is why we call it heart-based. If you hang out and connect and hold a space, you will come back to a loving person. You will. Once somebody feels safe enough, seen enough, recognized enough, once somebody feels they have enough space to kind of shake off the trauma of misfortune, people will come back to love. And that's an incredibly important thing to know in order to have a true north for the way forward, in order to recognize that this is not just a chaotic universe, it is a universe organized around love, it takes not creating, but relaxing mm. to come back to that. I love that. I, that's, I, yeah. <laughs> love, I've, I've been exploring this a lot in my own life. And for me, the entire game has become transforming fear into love mm-hmm. anywhere i feel fear anything mm-hmm. i'm afraid of mm-hmm. and trying to find the love in it. and love can be in the form of fulfillment it can be in the form of giving it can be in the form of self-care it can be a mm-hmm. form of so many different things pride mm-hmm. through action and 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 you know perseverance but what i find is especially when you talk about knowing is knowing is a form of trust right it comes from trusting yourself to know but if you don't have that trust, if you don't have that, if you don't have that fundamental core piece, it's easy to believe something like love could be a fallacy and know that a, a story that's keeping you trapped is true, right? So how do you even begin to decipher between that if you, like, where do you even start if you're at that point? I think the place you start is having a really, um, and, and this is something not to do lightly, and not to get sold on by some sort of quick, you know, marketing trick. Yeah. I think the place to start is to find somebody who is clearly more deeply established in that knowing than you are. Yeah. And to hang out. And that could look like a teacher. I think what I like, I like to be a coach, you know, because a coach is a kind of friendly peer based kind of thing. With coaching, you can realize, you know, we're friends. And when we're not doing the coaching thing, we're hanging out. But when we're doing the coaching thing, I'm here to hold space for you. I'm here to ground you in the deepest version of yourself, you know. So that's basically at my stage of life. You know, I'm like 163 now. So <laughs> uh, at my stage of life, that's what I find I can, I can do most effectively with my time is I coach. I personally coach a small number of people. Just just a bunch of people and that's what I do I just I constantly hold them to who they most deeply are their deepest potential the greatest contribution they can make and you know just gently lovingly patiently I keep reminding them keep holding them to the very best version of themselves and that's a long process you know I I don't I don't take anybody on for less than nine months and I prefer a year you know but nine months is like there's this saying, you know, it took nine months to birth you in your mother's womb. Yeah. Probably takes nine months to rebirth you too, you know. Holy crap, yeah. that is so profound. Yeah. So I like to hang out with people for nine months. And, you know, we go through all kinds of stuff. They go through shaking and doubt and fear and, oh, my God, and, you know. 
and they go through also the opposite, like extreme overexcitement, like, oh, we're going to do this, you know, and then, and then crashing with that. But, you know, I just steadily, I steadily hold a space. You are a fundamentally good person with a huge contribution to make and access to all the resources you need to make that happen. And you have the capacity to vision the very best possible future for humanity and to make that real. That's what I like to do, you know. So I would say for anybody, you know, I mean, this is a really great question you're asking. You know, if, if you can't connect, and there's nothing wrong with this. I, I remember many times in my life when I couldn't. Yeah. But if you can't connect with your own essential goodness, which is, you know, I have huge empathy and compassion for that. I know what that's like. And if you have lost faith or lost trust that there is essential goodness and an organizing principle, I would say the best thing you can do is, is search around and find the kind of goodest person you can find, right? Find the person who has the greatest likelihood of paving the way for you. And, you know, and here I want to just... Can I just add a little nuance to that? Of course, yeah. Because these days, there's a kind of a nuance with that around money, okay? So it used to be, a while back, a, a good criteria was, you know, look for somebody who's not after your money, right? So that's why often priests, you know, priests would, you didn't have to pay to go to a priest, you see, back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have to pay to go to a shaman or anything else. And it was actually inferred that if, if somebody in that guiding position was going to take your money, they were probably up to no good. Okay, so that was the principle, you know, in many, many traditions, including in the in the Christian church, right? Tithing and everything. But there was also a system set up where everybody was giving 10% of their income uh, as a tithe to that support system. It was like an insurance policy, you see. So now I don't think that's actually a very intelligent criteria anymore to look for somebody who's free all the time, because that may not give you the best results. Yeah. So I actually charge, you know, I, I get paid fairly well, but I'm also careful to only work with people who, for whom it's completely affordable, you know? So I'm not sure that it being free is, is particularly necessary or relevant, but I think it is important to look for somebody who is not motivated just to make a sale at any cost, you know? So I'm kind of a little suspicious, for example, of, you know, online courses where you sign up and then immediately something flashes up. Now you've got, you know, if you book in the next 20 minutes, you can get this upsell and all that. I mean, all of that gets a little iffy, you know, right? Because there is somebody somewhere in that system is just has an insatiable desire for more and more and more money. And I, I know a lot of the people who were at the beginning of internet marketing and there was this just, there was this no limit greed that drove the whole thing. It's like, you know, if I've got 2 million, I want four. If I've got 4 million, I want eight. But on the other hand, I don't necessarily think you want to be getting guided by somebody who's free because that may not provide you the quality you need. So I would say the answer to your question is find somebody who can hold space for you and guide you, who clearly is not eclipsed by their own self-interest, you know? So they're taking care of things in a professional way, but they've not gone drunk on their own self-interest. Yeah. You've helped a lot of people in the last several decades. What do you think is one of the most... Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> What do you think, just from all the patterns you've seen, Yeah, I've seen, I feel like you've got a better database understanding in general of the way humans sort of go from a place of suffering to yeah. a place of freedom. All right. What are some truths that you've seen mm. that keep people trapped? Like what are those stories that, that continue showing up? Well, I think you just said it. 
actually. You, you've just answered your own question. Great. You just used the, use the word stories, you know. Sometimes you can get a bit of a distance on this with um, entheogenic substances. What is that? Substances you can take that change your consciousness. Okay. You know, like LSD or ay- ayahuasca or uh, psilocybin or something. You know, there are different ways to do it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a quick way to be able to get a bit of a distance. But essentially, you know, we think, we think we're all living in the same reality, right? We're sitting on this grass. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a bunch of us sitting on this grass spread out right now. And we think, well, we're all sitting on the same grass experiencing the same reality. But actually what we overlook is everybody is running stories in their head all the time, right? What things mean, what might happen, what does he think of me, you know, am I doing okay, right? And we're actually, those stories that we keep running, and that's why I mentioned the entheogens, because, you know, sometimes people go, no, I'm not doing that. But if, if, you, if you just have some way to get a little distance on your mind, you know, and a chemical is sometimes a good way to, if you just have some way to get a little distance, you go, oh my God, all of that was running the whole time, you know? So... There's lots of ways to get that distance. I mean, if you just sit, okay, if you, let's, let's just go another route. If you just sit, you know, spend, get into a habit of sitting regularly, like a, a sitting practice, a meditation practice, you just sit and observe for 20, 30, 30, 40 minutes. You've got your eyes closed, right? Maybe you're even wearing a blindfold. There's, you're not, you don't hear anything. There's no reason to have any story right now. You're in, a, you're in a still state, but the stories keep running. And then if you notice just how fast and convincing those stories are when you're sitting doing nothing... What it means is all day long, when we're interacting with people, there's stories running in the background, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Stories giving meaning to things that don't have that meaning. She doesn't like me. She looked away because she doesn't like me. Oh, this person does like me. This person trying to get something. We, we've got all these interpretations that we put on things. Basically, you know, underneath those stories is an incredibly benevolent, playful, beautiful world. It's, it's gorgeous. Look at it. I mean, look at the, just the poetry and motion of these trees and the grass and the colors and the symphony of it all. And really, you know, a lot of what human beings are doing now, almost 8 billion human beings, what we're doing to this planet is collectively imposing the story of not enough, I want more for me onto a very beautiful planet. And that's, you know, we're stripping the resources out of this insatiable desire to fill a black hole that is really created by stories you see and that's what you know the entire marketplace that we've created is weaving stories and it's called marketing it's called advertising and the story is you are incomplete and unhappy unless unless you buy my gizmo right so if you can disengage from stories if you can find any way to get a distance on stories and maybe even write some different stories if you like I mean, just observing the stories that are there will give you freedom. But if you can find a way to write some more benevolent, humorous, generous stories, you're going to up your game. I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, I, I told you a little bit, I used to be an engineer. Mm, employee, you did, yeah. You know, like, no, this is a very different life I live now than uh, I even thought was possible. Kudos, you rewrote the storybook, yeah. Yeah, and to me it came, I, mean, I remember I used to, <laughs> this is weird, I don't, I haven't talked about this publicly, but... I used to have, I still do actually, this like morning mantra mm. that I had in my shower mm. where I would write out like the type of person that I was mm. because I was an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, start, I mean, and like I was brainwashing myself into actually believing I was an entrepreneur before yeah. I ever became one. Yeah. And I just kept telling myself those stories and pushing myself 
And eventually I started telling people I was an entrepreneur and I started mm-hmm. believing it. Mm-hmm. I started acting differently. Mm-hmm. The stories, the stories create the plan of action, right? right? They create the, 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 the first step or the lack of steps. The, the story is the thing that, and once you realize it is just a, it's a chapter. It's a, right. you can rewrite a chapter. You can write a new one. You can right. launch new books. You can yeah. do, it's, 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 so where does that end? How do you, like, where does that end? When I hear you, what I, what I hear is there are two intelligent ways we could adjust that situation, right? One would be to have a regular way of tapping into what it's like to have no story running, okay? One great way to do that is to devote time every morning. I like to do it before the dawn. It's a great time before the sun rises. Devote some time to simply sitting. I don't like the word meditation because it, you know, it has a connotation of you've got to achieve some state or follow some protocol. I just say sitting, you know, literally you're just going to, you can do it in the bed. You know, you just put yourself into a sitting position, put your legs cross-legged. I like to put on a blindfold so I don't even have to try and close my eyes. The eyes can float open. There's a blindfold, put in a quick commercial plug here, Tempur, you know, the company Tempur. They've got a blindfold on Amazon for $29 and it, it's beautiful. It's, it's kind of velour, you know, like velvety. So you can actually open your eyes and close your eyes. doesn't matter. It's, uh, you don't have to try and keep your eyes closed. Close your eyes uh, or open your eyes, but you've got the blindfold on, and you just sit. And you just sit. And that's all you've got to do is just sit. Now, I've got this book, Radical Brilliance. There's a chapter in there called How to Sit. So uh, you can, uh, And if you go to uh, radicalbrilliance.com, I think there's even a download for free yeah, on we'll How to Sit. We'll make all these links available. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Anyway, so... That's one great thing you can do is if you, if you take, I like to take about an hour every day now, but you can start off with, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just sit and be, and you may feel super uncomfortable, like super itchy, but what you know is, okay, that's the story you're carrying around with you is for us, is sort of impatience. Right. And right. that, that quality of impatience that is arising now in your sitting is it's what's driving your whole day. You might feel suddenly super frustrated. You know, you're sitting, you're sitting and you start to feel all these emotions like, ah, well, that's what you're carrying around with you. So, so if you devote some time just to observing, because they're not engaging with the outside world, those stories will start to dissipate. And you may get a few little glimpses of who you are and what reality is when there isn't a story running. And that's called peace, you see. When there's not a story running, including a story of desire or excitement, that's called peace. That's called love, actually. That's called stillness. That's called awareness. That's called, you know, different words for it. So that's a great thing. If you can have a time of your day, I like it at the beginning after sleeping, devoted to just hanging out. Sooner or later, over time, not every time, but sooner or later, you're going to bump into little pockets of stillness. So that's one, you know, one thing that I was reflecting on from you was saying. The other thing is, maybe right after that, you know, is recognize from a blank slate, you know, from an empty canvas, what do you want to put on it? Right? What do you, I mean, if you can, if you could rewrite any story you wanted, so you, you mentioned the entrepreneur story, right? I'm an entrepreneur. That's a fine story, right? How about I'm a conscious entrepreneur? How about I'm a social entrepreneur? I'm an entrepreneur whose entrepreneurship is dedicated to making a difference. That's starting to sound like a really good story now, right? Okay. How about I'm an entrepreneur 
whose entrepreneurship is dedicated to a better quality of life for future generations. That's starting to sound like a very good story to me, right? A fun story, you know? How about I'm a loving being who's dedicated to causing Vinny to giggle for no reason at all just from being loved. That sounds like a fun story, right? That's a story that I run a lot. I actually, that's actually a game that I play. Every day, I'm interested to see, can I make my wife, Shamily, laugh out loud for no reason just because she feels so loved? And most days I hit it, right? She doesn't know why she's laughing. She's just laughing because she's being loved, right? <laughs> she, can, she just is feeling so loved, not even through my actions. I, sometimes I just do it just by looking at her. I just look at her with love and I see, can I make her laugh with pleasure just because she feels so loved? That's a fun story to put on your board, right? So then, then there could be other like terrible stories. You could, you could, some people put, I'm a terrible person on my story. And of course that plays out then, you know. Some people put, you know, I'm guilty, on the story. Some people put nobody likes. So look at the stories that just ended up there haphazardly. You know, you know, it's rather like when you, when you, when you're a student at college, you know, and you, you start to inherit all this bric-a-brac furniture, like a broken couch that somebody threw up on, you know, and a, an old futon that's got some mold, you know, you know what I mean? Did you have that at college? You know, you, yeah, we something like that. Yeah, you end up with this was back in the seventies, but I, I had a lot of kind of very questionable furniture, you know, that just like stuff I picked up at a garage sale, you know. And then there comes a point as you get a little older, it's like, wait, I've just got a bunch of ju- random junk here. It doesn't match, you know. I've got a bunch of knives and forks, they're not all the same. I'm going to actually start to replace what's there with some really good stuff, you know. So I'm going to go to IKEA or somewhere. I, I you know, that's just one place you can go. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to buy some, uh, I'm going to buy like a sofa and a chair and a kind of thing you put your feet on. What's that called? Like a puffy thing, an ottoman or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to, and they're going to match. And now I've actually made a deliberate choice. I went along to Ikea with my wife and we looked at the gray color and the beige color and the blue color. And we went, let's have that one. Now we've made a deliberate conscious choice. We're, we've chosen of all the possible things we've chosen. We're going to put that in our living room and we're going to actually get rid of that random stuff that we had, you know? And then you could do it with your books. You know, you could look through your books and go, wow, there's a bunch of books in here. That I don't know how I ended up with them. Somebody gave me some of these books. They're just nothing to do with me. Let's throw those out. Let's actually put some books on this shelf that are actually meaningful and part of my value system. So you could do that. You could replay, you could re, you could do your clothes. You know, you could go through your wardrobe and go, when do I ever wear that? It looks completely dorky. I'm not going to keep that. And then you could actually buy another shirt, you see? So in the same way, you could do that with stories. You know, you could go, what are the stories that I've just ended up with? Maybe because I wanted to please my parents. Maybe because, you know, it looked cool when I was 15, but it doesn't look cool now, right? So what are the stories I've ended up with? And what would be the very best story to make of my life? What would be the very best story? And as far as I'm concerned, obviously I'm a little biased, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the very best story you could choose to tell with your life would be a story that would be most meaningful to people in 100 years. So, you, the, so the, the grandchildren of your grandchildren could go, that guy Raj, he was a king. He deserved the name Raj. He made such a huge contribution. It's still ricocheting down 100 years later. The things that Raj put in place with his Get Grounded podcast and all his awesome stuff, he was a king. He just turned the story, he turned the game around for everybody. That guy Raj, he was the best. He was my, he was the grandfather of my grandfather, like all homage to Raj, you know, right? So that would be an amazing story to write. If you could write a story for your life that had so much impact that people after your death would go on singing the story of your life. That would be a life well lived. So something came up for me, which is why I want to ask it. Yeah. When I think about creating 
a very extraordinary life or, you know, achieving extraordinary things. It's never been because of that, mm-hmm. right? So I, I guess I want to ask you what role the ego plays yeah. in create because like there's there's a balance of creating yeah. to serve and then creating yeah to got it to, for the for the You're vanity right. and so how do you yeah. especially in the age of social media and uh, like how do you balance because yeah. you need an ego to uh, achieve it. right okay thank you for that correction brother yeah I made a mistake in what I was saying I was I was off. It's not about them singing your praises in a hundred years. That was the wrong way to say it. It's better to say, you know, what could you create with your life so that you can imagine in a hundred years, whether they even know your name or not, that the quality of their life is so much better, Mm. right? That's a better way to say it because it's not really about you getting praised, but that you've left the world in a way better state than you created it. it. And in such a way that it plays forward, you know? Yeah. That's what I do with people. You know, that's my... It's my particular little, little niche, you know, is, is I find people who already have a pretty good machine running and I help them up the reason why. Okay. I help them up the motivating force. So for example, this doctor, I told you, Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, he, he was already, you know, a very prestigious doctor, already had a good reputation with the WHO, was already working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He, He already had all that going on. But it was dedicated to vaccine safety. Now, vaccine safety is not a terrible thing. Making sure vaccines are safe, that's a good thing. But through working together, we saw that the way all of that effort was dedicated could be upgraded quite a bit. So we upgraded it to heart in medicine. How could we actually reintroduce heart and love into medicine? So when you walk into hospital, it feels like the most loving place. That felt like an upgrade to him, you see. So we we upgraded the story. That's what I love to do, you know, is, is to help people discover with the resources they have, the talents, the network, you know, the money, the reputation, you know, what is the very, very, very highest purpose we could dedicate this to? I'm a super fan of you. (laughs) I'm a super fan of you too. I really appreciate you and just the dedication you have to helping people with something so fundamental as the story that they tell themselves like Mm. that. I don't think there's anything more powerful than the stories we tell ourselves or the lack of stories Yeah, and the belief and the knowing in that, right? Not even the belief. It's the knowing that you don't need anything. You don't need a particular story. You, you can create it. You can own it. You can be uh-huh. the life you want to be. So I want to... Oh, hang on. Before you hang, can I just say one thing yeah. about that? I just wanted to, um, to dwell on that a minute. And thank you for saying you're a super fan of, of, of me. And, and I wanted just to throw that right back and say, I'm a super fan of you. And I, and I want to tell you why. Because, you know, let's think about our story, the story of humanity. So as far as we understand, you know, maybe 200,000 years ago, our ancestors were living in caves. And they probably had extremely primitive beliefs, extremely limited understanding. They certainly knew nothing about bacteria or electromagnetic energy or silicon chips or anything. You know, the understanding of Homo sapiens, but living very primitively was very, very basic. Now, let me ask you. So here we are today in 2019 and there they were then. Who is more evolved, them or us? Us. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, we are an upgraded version of humanity, right? Now, people listening to this on on audio, they're not going to be able to see this, but I'm just going to draw draw in with my hand a line, you know, that uh, what's, what's called an exponential curve, right? So things go along flat 
And there's, there's a lot of things operating. They go along flat, it hits a kind of pivotal point, and then the line goes steeply up, right? So that's what we've seen happening in almost every area of, of human activity since about 1970. We've seen an exponential leap. Some of it has been dangerous because we've seen, we've seen technology upgrade so quickly that it's actually been a drain on the resources of the planet. But nevertheless, what technology can do has been crazy. I mean, it's since, yeah. since 1980, we've seen the advent of the personal computer, right? I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have microchips. You can't imagine that, right? I mean, so we didn't have calculators when I was a kid. So obviously humanity is evolving. And, and it's pretty obvious that in the last few decades, that evolution has taken an exponential curve upwards, right? So it's not just like, you know, if we, if we used to be, let's say, let's say we used to kind of increase our evolution by one unit every hundred years. Now we're increasing our, our evolution by one unit every year, right? So what that means is that as a millennial, right, you are, by that logic, clearly, indisputably, without any doubt whatsoever, a much more evolved human being than I am. Because you were born, you know, 30-something years later, right? And there was massive evolution took place in that gap, in that 30 years difference between my birth and yours. So you are actually the future. You know, I'm, I'm honored to stand you know, like an aging parent to stand on the sidelines of the game and cheer you on. But you are the future, you and your generation, conscious entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, millennial entrepreneurs, you are the future. You are the ones who are going to turn this around. I'm really sorry on behalf of my generation for all the mess that you've had to inherit. I really apologize for all of that kind of indulgent, you know, misuse of resources. But you are the ones with the intelligence and the heart and the compassion and actually the egolessness to operate co collaboratively and collectively, you are the ones who are going to actually create the triumphs of humanity, not us. You know, we, we messed a lot of stuff up. I'm here as your friend. I'm here to kind of, you know, offer you the best I can. A lot of it is learning from mistakes rather than learning from victories, you know. Yeah. But really, your generation is, where of, is that of which I'm a super fan. You know, I'm a super fan of your generation because I can see conscious millennial entrepreneurs you are the guys who are going to who are going to knock it out of the ballpark and create heaven on earth wow i so any entrepreneurs listening i hope that <laughs> that little fire under you because that that just that that got me really inspired thank you mm, yeah. um arjuna if i know you don't work with a lot of people uh, but if there are people who wanted to learn from you mm. And and get involved in your world. Right. What are the best ways for for us to right. to send you love and and, mm -hmm. and gratitude and and be a part of the heart centered person you are? Like, I, how do I? I just want to be around you all the time, man. Like, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> let's like, do it. <laughs> let's do it. Great. Write that story on your on your board. You know. Let's do that. Let's be friends. That's. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious, man. I'm 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 happy to I'm happy to hang. I, I would. Where yeah. is it? You live again? I forgot. I live in Austin. Austin. That's right. It's a good place. It's a great place. Yeah, we'll come hang in California. You know, uh, we'll, right? we'll make it work. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, honestly, you know, almost all my friends are around 30. That's the age group that has got the mojo to do what I want to see happen. So I just hang out all the time with 30-year-olds, you know. I don't have any friends my age. I've, got, I've only got millennial friends. You know? That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> so we got a website. It's radicalbrilliance.com. I would suggest just start there. You know, it's got one of these things that websites have where... As a little welcome video, you can 
put in your email and it sends you a series of stuff. It's just free stuff. You, know, you, can, you can always take your email out of the thing again. So it's got a series of videos that explains what radical brilliance is. It explains the radical brilliance cycle. It explains like sitting and the way we talked about today. It also has a kind of revolutionary way to understand sex, sex as a practice to enhance brilliance. That's kind of cool. From there, a next step. But if you, if you just go to the website and get started on that, once you're done with those videos, it will send you another email suggesting you might be interested in the book, you know. So there's a book, radicalbrilliance.com. Yep. It's on, you know, paperback, Kindle, and Audible. So you can listen to it in the car, you know. And from there, you know, there's different things. You, I mean, obviously, I, could, I don't work with many people one-on-one. But if you do want to change the world in some huge way, um, then, you know, shout, give me a shout. Because uh, anybody doing anything to make the world a better place, I'm interested. But we also have something called the Global Practice Community. It's a small community of people who are interested in practicing Radical Brilliance together. And we also do eight-week group coaching programs, right? Okay. So that means uh, I'm there with, it's just about 20 people. I'm there with some other coaches, and we take a group of people through a coaching process together. Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Well, we'll make all those links available, everyone, so don't frantically write down things. That, Actually, you just need yeah. one. You just need radicalbrilliance.com. Yeah. That's and by about. the way, Radical Brilliance is, uh, that's the, the talk that Arjuna gave uh, here, and yeah. I pick up the book. You know, you can go through all that, but just get the book, explore what this brilliant man has mm-hmm. created, because really it is, uh, it's a very logical and pure process for understanding the way that the different cycles of life and the different seasons that we're in. And uh, I really did. I really appreciate you, Arjuna. Thank you so Great, much. Love you, bro. Love you too, brother. But everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your friend, Arjuna. And from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay Grounded.